0: Ephesians 2, verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 10. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too... Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. One of the strangest, and I would even say more unexpected, sensations of pop culture has gripped our generation. I didn't see it coming, to be honest. I should have seen it in the early days of my high school years when a a series of movies began to show up on the big screen. And that is our generation has become obsessed with zombies. The living dead. Taylor Leamy takes a tongue-in-cheek stab at this obsession in her article, Would life insurance cover zombies? We asked the experts. I want to read you. It's just short. It's a very interesting article. She says this. Zombies have been a fan favorite for horror enthusiasts for decades. From Night of the Living Dead to The Walking Dead, the zombie apocalypse is always a fascinating scenario to analyze. But one thing that is never addressed in the movies is life insurance for for zombies and survivors alike. So we talked to the experts to see if returning to life in a less than ideal state would be covered under a typical life insurance policy. I know you've all been wondering this. We're operating on a few assumptions. First, life insurance companies are still operating during the possible zombie apocalypse. Secondly, that you have the ability to pay a premium each month to keep your policy active while scaring people away. The short answer is no, zombies are not covered. As it stands, a zombie would likely not be covered under traditional life insurance policies, setting aside the breakdown in society that would surely accompany a zombie apocalypse. I think a life insurance company would be hard-pressed to determine if someone who is a zombie is living or dead. Birkin, an expert from Woodward Financial Advisors, adds that since life insurance only pays at death, Insurance companies would be more than likely to claim that the undead don't qualify and wouldn't pay the claim. Since the zombies, is this interesting to you, since a zombie's life expectancy is hard to pin down and they have a whole slew of pre-existing conditions, dependence on brains and the potential loss of limbs randomly, insuring zombies would be difficult, not to mention costly. And since zombies can't hold down a job, a zombie wouldn't be able to afford a policy anyway. So, It really wouldn't be profitable for companies to take such a risky investment. Another added road bump is collecting the the insurance money. There would be nothing stopping someone from naming themselves as a beneficiary during the apocalypse and collecting the money once they die, which would not be sustainable for companies. So once you become a zombie, you're dead, at least as far as your insurance company would be concerned. You still can protect your family before your inevitable demise, however. If you're facing a zombie apocalypse and face danger, the last thing you would want to do is leave your family in debt and what the associated cost. So if you see signs of a resurrection of the dead or your neighbor trying to eat your brain, you should set up your life insurance policy as soon as possible. Ideally, you would want to do it before the issue hit the news because premiums would skyrocket once zombies are roaming the streets. Undeniably, proving that you're a zombie would, will be difficult for your family, but we'll assume it won't be impossible. Jack Nolan, vice president of public affairs at the American Council of Life Insurance, suggests that you meet with a financial advisor before the apocalypse to ensure your family is covered, whether it's a zombie apocalypse or a regular long-term or regular long-term planning. The best way for most people to ensure they are financially protected is through walking through a life insu- working through a life insurance agent or another type of financial advisor, Dolan adds. How much would you need for coverage during the apocalypse? Well, deciding how much coverage you need for the zombie apocalypse is a little bit more complicated. But if you can afford it, get as much as you can. Randy Vanderveit, president, uh, president and owner of uh, uh, funeral funds, suggests whole life insurance. Quote, we don't know how long a zombie apocalypse will last, and you wouldn't want to be caught dead with a term life insurance policy that will only last 20 or 30 years. You certainly don't want your insurance to die before you do. And then to sum up, insuring zombies, she says, would be too difficult and expensive for insurance companies. Even though your life insurance would end when you became a zombie, that doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in a policy at the start of the apocalypse. Insurance companies will likely treat your crossover as your death, so you would still be able to provide for your family one last time. Then it's on to a life of eating others' brains for you. Silly, tongue in cheek, but it talks about an obsession with the living dead. As silly as all those questions sound, as silly as that article is, as tongue-in-cheek and funny as it might be, it's important and it raises serious questions about the living dead. No, we're not talking about preparing for a zombie apocalypse. What we want to do, though, is understand life and death and living and dying. And that's the subject of the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul lays out for us critical certainties about life and death and living and dying, and they are not intuitively perceived. In fact, it's a compact curriculum on ontology and soteriology. What I mean by that is Paul defines for us what life really is, what death really is, and how to uh, understand eternal salvation that God has provided. Said another way, these verses before us define a biblical anthropology, how we understand life and people. And the place Paul begins is a very dark place. It's a universally dark place, a universally dark reality for everyone, a universally dark past for every Christian. Paul shows us As people call it, the backside of the quilt. He reveals to us the stark reality of our existence. And it's this: before coming to Jesus Christ, every one of us and every believer who has ever lived and who lives today is spiritually dead, though physically alive. They're not zombies, but they are the walking dead. Paul tells us that unbelievers are indeed dead men walking. Spiritual zombies, if you will. Now, why start here in this explanation about salvation? Why would Paul start with the darkness before he gets to the light of the glory of God in salvation? Well, some friends have come along to help us here. J.C. Ryle says this, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. Think about that. Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. A.W. Pink, likewise, says this, growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves it is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies, End quote. I've come to conclude that one of the most useful tools Satan has is this. Convincing people that sin is not that big of a problem. Maybe not even a problem at all if you minimize your sin, if you underestimate your sin, if you depersonalize your sin, or if you stratify your sin, what I mean by that is you you say some sins are worse than others and other people's sins are worse than mine. If you look at sin like that, you will never understand the glory and wonder of salvation. If you just think of a, of yourself as a good old boy or a nice gal who the Lord said, I want them on my team, you will never, never be moved in your affections about salvation that would motivate genuine and true pursuits of holiness. Sin has been passed down to each generation from Adam to the present day. Everyone is born with a perverse nature apart from God's grace. Our minds are darkened in sin, unable to understand the truth of God. Our hearts are defiled, unable to love the truth. Our bodies are dying, progressing to physical death. Our wills are dead, unable to choose right over wrong. We are morally unable to please God and that plagues every person from their entrance into this world. Last night I was holding my my precious little grandson, Charlie. I was thinking about him this morning, going over my my sermon, and just thinking, he came into the world as a residence of evil, just like us. You say, how can you talk about an infant and a child that way? Because that's exactly what David tells us. We were all born into that condition. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel will never be the solution. But he is really cute, by the way. Paul begins with this all unbelievers, everyone outside of Christ, outside of Christ's grace, are spiritually dead living under the power and influence of the world, living under the power and influence of the devil, living under the power and influence of their own fleshly desires, and that, ma- that makes every person born by nature people living under God's rightful and coming judgment and wrath. So here in verses 1 to 3, Paul's gonna talk about the believer's life and condition, B.C., before Christ. What does life look like before Christ? Now, for believers to look at this, we're looking back at our lives. For an unbeliever, if that may be your your state, you don't know Christ, you've never given your your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is you. This is a description of you. Listen carefully to Paul. And as he gives us this picture, this view, rather, he provides really two pictures or a zoom-in shot One is with a wide-angle lens that looks at the whole condition. That's verse 1. And then he zooms in the lens and looks at the details of that condition. Zooming in and showing us the details in verses 2 and 3. This is truly life, the life of the living dead. But the wonderful news... For believers, it is life B.C. This was our old life, and that's the point Paul's making here, after chapter 1 and coming into chapter 2. So we're going to break it down, and we're only going to get, full disclosure, through the first one of these today, two pictures of life before Christ. And since we're not going to get there, can I just show you where we're going? First of all, we're going to look today at the state of the unbeliever's condition, spiritually dead in sin. That's the assessment. That's the wide angle lens. That's the big picture. But secondly, in In our next study, we'll look at the details, not the state, but the details of the unbeliever's condition, which is that we are irrepressibly, irrepressibly, uncontrollably alive to sinful influences. So we're dead in verse one, we're alive to sinful influences in verses two and three, and we'll see that that means living according to a godless worldview, living according to a satanic agenda, and living according to an ungodly nature, but again, we will be there in just... A few weeks, so just hold on to that. We're just going to look at that first one today. The first picture of life before Christ, the widest angle, the state of who we are as unbelievers, spiritually dead in sin, verse 1. Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. We discuss so many times that when you're studying a passage The first three most important uh, principles to apply to interpret that passage appropriately are what? Context, context, context. What is the context? These verses don't just come out of nowhere, nor do they lead nowhere. These verses immediately are preceded in in chapter 1 by a a real theological on-ramp to understand verse 1 of chapter 2. Let's go back a little bit. Look at verse 20. Paul is focusing on the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 20. Talking about salvation, which he brought about in Christ when he, God, raised him, Jesus. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, every location, every age, every sphere, supernatural and temporal. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of my favorite musical devices, I'm not a, Good musician, certainly uh, uh, not a great musician, but I love the study of music. And one of the things I love as a technique is called a a pedal tone. In in some uh, pieces or some songs, a pedal tone is used to sustain suspense and to stitch different phrasings in a song together. Typically, it's the lower end. It's it's the bass or for us, it's the the cello, the lower notes, or a chord that is played all the way through a verse or a chorus. It's a phrasing that stays on that same note and the rest of the movement, the the chords move around that note, but it stays the same. There's a pedal tone in this passage and it is the movement from death to life. The transition here is from God raising Jesus to life from the dead back in 120, to Christians being raised from death to life in verses 4 and following of chapter 2. This all happens because we are in Christ. A believer has solidarity with Christ. What God did in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, in Christ, with Christ to and for us, Matters because we live in him. So God raised Jesus from the dead. That had meaning and significance for you and me as believers who are spiritually dead and can be raised from death to life. That's the point he's making. Note the similarity, by the way, in chapter two with the wording. This is interesting. Look at verse one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now look down at verse five even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's a sandwich. Two things said about the same reality and with data in between. Now, I I don't want to bore anybody with uh, Greek grammar, but uh, it's very interesting that the main verb of this long sentence in verses 1 through 10, the main verb doesn't show up until verses 4 and 5. The main verb is verse 4. God... And you pick up the, 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 there's this, the, the subject and the verb is in verse 5. Made us alive. That's the main point. Everything before that in the grammar are participles that lead up to that. Everything is preparatory in an introduction to that great statement. God made us alive, which would make no sense unless we were dead. Right. The Greek grammar here is surprising. And it's amazing, and a few translations pick up this. Certainly, the, the um, uh, side reference in the New American Standard picks this up as well. God makes us alive in verse four, but we are dead in verse one. It's actually a participle, antas nukrus, being dead, being in the state of death, being dead. It wasn't just, it's stronger to say being dead than it is you were dead. It was you were constantly in the state of being a walking dead man. So in this introductory parenthetical section that leads us up to finding out what God did to make us alive, Paul tells us that we needed to be made alive because we were in the state of being dead, spiritual deadness. Now, what's interesting is when you add this first point, this first uh, picture, with the second picture, let me just forecast a little bit. Because if you read verses 2 and 3, we discover that those outside of Christ are obviously not physically dead. Quite the contrary. They are very much alive. Look at verse 2. Among them too, we all formerly, what's the word? Lived. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, Paul, you said we were dead and now you're talking about in that state how we lived. This tells us that he's speaking of a spiritual deadness, not a physical deadness. We were very much alive. What does that mean? How do we live? In the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Back up to verse two. You walked. We'll look at that next, next, in our next study. Walked is a euphemism for lived. We walked and lived according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the lusts of our flesh. So, though dead, we lived. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't have your faith and trust in Christ, you are dead and alive, spiritually dead and alive in your sinful pursuits and to those sinful pursuits. Verses two and three describe how very much alive we are to sinful and satanic influences, and that'll be a study on its own next time. Well, look at this deadness, how it's described in verse one. You being dead, the state of this deadness, in your trespasses and sins. We already talked about this back in chapter one, verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his his grace. And we noted that the word trespasses and sins are synonyms. He's just compounding it here. In your trespasses and your sins, the ways you violated God's ways and standards and the ways you have erred from his will. These two words come together to describe an unbeliever's deliberate rebellion against God. all of those outside of Christ are spiritually dead and even though they are dead, they are still capable of cosmic mutiny against the creator. You ever think about David's confession of his sin in Psalm 51? You remember the story well. He should have been out in the field in battle with his Joab and the rest of the armies. But instead, he stays back, is tempted with lust, looking at Bathsheba, commits adultery, ultimately murder. If you were to look at the the raw consequences of sin, everyone would say, well, he sinned against Bathsheba for sure, Can you say he sinned any worse against Uriah, her husband? No, he had him murdered and violated his wedding bed and he sinned against his comrades because he kept her in in his palace for seven days for her purification, so he was conspiracy and lying to cover this up. He sinned against a lot of people and yet after all of that, he says in his confession in Psalm 51, verse four, speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Was David insensitive? Was he somehow unaware that he sinned against this woman and this man and the general and his army and his comrades? Of course he wasn't. Of course he sinned against them. Of course he knew about that. Go back and read the account of Samuel. And he he fully understood that he lost a child over this. He understood that. But when it came to understanding his sin at the deepest level, he still saw that as against God and God only. The primary offense was against God. Had he not sinned against God, none of these other sins would have happened. Verse 1 is a summary of that kind of understanding. Being dead in sins and trespasses. It's that wide angle lens that displays the spiritual condition of anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So let's ask a question How dead is dead? What does dead mean? As if I can quote one of my favorite movies, does this mean mostly dead? Or all the way dead? Well, that's an important question. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Let me give you a description. It means you're unable to respond to God. It means you're unable to communicate with God. It means you're unable to act or change anything spiritually in your own life. You cannot improve your moral condition. It means ultimately that you are unable and impotent to get to God. Add to that, if you look at the end of this passage in verse three, we are in our unbelieving state, children of wrath, unresponsive to God's revelation of his son and his word and awaiting the judgment of God because of our condition and our state, even if we don't anticipate it. Dead is dead. I told you when we were studying Ephesians 1, 4 to 6 on predestination and God's choice and God's election that I was very resistant to that theology when I was growing up until I got in the seminary and what convinced me of the truth of the sovereignty of God and salvation was this passage. It was the understanding that if I'm if I'm dead then I have no choice to make for God to somehow be kind to me or for God to respond to me. Look back for a moment at chapter 1, verse 3 in this the shadow of the first three verses of chapter 2. Blessed be the God and Father, chapter 1, verse 3, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and as we said, exhibit a... Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. There's an obvious implication here that God chose us because we would not have chosen him. There's a song that I grew up with, and the chorus goes, I believe, I believe, because he made me to believe. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will, he's so kind and gracious to the praise of the glory of his grace. He chose us to show how gracious he is. We'll see twice in our sentence, verses one to 10 of chapter two, that Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. If we are saved by grace, it is God's raising the dead and God's choice Not ours, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The reason that predestination is not only a reality but a necessity is because the dead don't respond to God unless He gives them life to do so. Stephen Cole helps us here. He writes, The truth that we are spiritually dead before God saved us is a watershed in one's theology of salvation. Look, that's significant enough to read again. Listen to what he's saying. The truth that we are spiritually dead before God saved us is a watershed in one's theology of salvation. Those who deny God's sovereignty and salvation have to redefine what it means to be spiritually dead. Above all else, they want to avoid the conclusion that it implies inability. Because if sinners are spiritually unable to believe the gospel, then salvation must be totally of God and not at all due to man's free choice to believe. So they argue that spiritual death only means being separated from God. It does not imply the inability to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, end quote. I think that's important. Those who deny the sovereignty of God and salvation must redefine what spiritual deadness is. Small paragraph by John Stott. This biblical statement about the deadness of the non-Christian, of non-Christian people rather, raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. This, This is really good. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatsoever, who openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. One has a vigorous body of an athlete. Another, the lively mind of a scholar. A third, a vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ does not save them, are dead? Stott says, yes. Indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither body nor mind nor the personality but the soul, they have no life, and you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. So, we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And those who live it are dead even while they are living. To affirm this paradox, Stott says, is to become aware of the basic tragedy of the fallen human condi- existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the good shepherd found us, End quote. Let's remember where we are in this study of this passage. We've just talked about, Paul has just talked to us about the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on us. All flowing from the gift of salvation. In order for us to deeply understand that, now in chapter two, he says, you do understand what a miraculously big deal it is to be converted by God. You do know what he converted you from. He didn't just, give you some improvements. This wasn't a tune-up. This is a new car. This is new life. This is a resurrection spiritually. This passage moves us from hopelessness to hope and death to life. Now, it's impossible. I wish we could stay longer because the first question you have is, how, how does a... How does living death work? How does dead life work? How how does that work? And, And he tells us in the next two verses, you formerly lived or walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest So when he details this, he tells us we lived as an unbeliever according to a godless worldview, according to a satanic agenda, and according to an ungodly nature, your mind and your flesh. But before you get to those details, you have to accept that our sins and our trespasses render us dead before God, which makes salvation indescribably precious and unreachable without his sovereign power and kind grace. Well, just from this first verse and this first point, this first portrayal, this picture of life before Christ, I've pulled away a few takeaways, and you're welcome to have these as well. The first is this. This helps us understand the true nature of those we are evangelizing. It helps us to understand the true nature of those we are evangelizing. If God and God alone raises the dead through the truth of the gospel, then our responsibility is to beg and present, not to coerce. If we understand that we are not going to talk them into spiritual life. You can no more do that than going out to a graveyard this afternoon, standing over those graves and say, everyone get up and let's have a soccer game. Those graves will remain covered. We are doing the same thing in evangelism, but that gives us not hopelessness, but hope. Because in giving the gospel, we put all of the power and confidence of evangelism on God. So now... It's our job to be faithful and God's prerogative to move and to change people's hearts. It should give you confidence and contentment in your evangelistic efforts. Another takeaway we should think frequently about the condition from which God saved us. We should think frequently about our deadness before Christ. We sang it just a few minutes ago Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. In the song accents, remembering what we were and what we are because of God. Think frequently, talk frequently. Let me encourage you with your, with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with, with someone at lunch today. Just take a few minutes and say, I am freshly amazed because you should be, but I was dead, now I'm alive. I was hopeless, now I have hope. I was a spiritual orphan, now I'm an adopted child of God. And thirdly, this ought to jump off the page at you. We should continue to repent of those trespasses and sins from which God saved us. We should continue to repent from those trespasses and sins from which God saved us. This goes back to what we read, the purpose of our predestination. He predestined us in chapter 1, verse 5, to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his grace and glory. Why? That all feeds from verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Salvation should change us. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Never never may it be. May it never be. Then he's asked this question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So if we were being dead in our trespasses and sins and where God has made us alive by grace, then if you go down to chapter 2, verse 10... We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, for repentance. Our reminding ourselves of the dead state from which we were raised should remind us to repent from those trespasses and sins which which characterized our pre-Christian experience. John Owen talks about this, and he really says everything about uh, this in, in the title of a book. Think about this. Just think about it. The death of death in the death of Christ. That's his title. The death of death in the death of Christ. And by that means the death of our physical death, but but the death of our spiritual death. He has killed our spiritual death by making us alive in Christ. Which leads us to the inevitable question, how can you know if you are no longer no longer spiritually dead? Real simple: Will you believe the truth of the gospel? If you will believe that, you can only believe that if God is working in your heart. Doesn 't say you have to have strong faith, just some faith. And then following on that, do you believe and are you pursuing a life of holiness? Does sin bother you? We were dead, being dead in our trespasses and sins and life in God brings us to a place where we hate those sins. We're repenting from trespasses and sins. That's the broadest brush. That's the wide angle lens. In verses two, he focuses the lens down and says, let me tell you the details of this death. And it's humbling. It is sobering. We have an irrepressibly godless worldview, living according to a satanic agenda, and we have ungodly natures. And when we start unpacking this, it, it's incredible that God saved us. From such a hopeless condition. Well, if that's you, can you thank God for that today and be freshly amazed at grace? It's very possible though that you don't know Christ, that you are still spiritually dead. And what will wake you up from that grave of sinful death is believing that God sent his son Jesus. To pay for those sins by his death on a cross. And says, If you believe that I killed my son instead of my wrath being poured out on you and raised him from the dead, and I offer you eternity in a relationship with me, you can be saved and become spiritually resurrected from the dead.